back in the Gospel of Luke this morning. We have been doing this Luke for a couple years now, and we are now to the last week of Christ's life. We've been there for a couple weeks now, and it's already started, but that's where we're at. So Luke chapter 20, get that in front of your eyes on paper or a device. If you're really crazy, go ahead and do it by memory. Uh, I don't think anyone's doing that, though. Maybe. Uh, Previously, on the Gospel of Luke, now that we've had a week off from it, kind of catch you up, the leaders uh, of the temple asked Jesus, what authority do you do the things that you're doing? What what authority do you do that? And Jesus countered them with this checkmate question regarding their understanding of the baptism of John the Baptist. You know, whose is it? Is it from heaven or is it uh, from man? Is it not from heaven? And it ended with Jesus telling them, since you're not going to answer my question, I'm not going to answer your question. Uh, and you can imagine at that moment, that's, that's the awkward moment, right? Okay, well, how do we go forward now if no one's going to talk here? Um, and, and Jesus fills that awkward silence, that awkward moment with the passage we're reading today. That's how this comes into being. And, um, and he does it as he often does a lot of things. He does it by telling a story. Uh, or more precisely, he does it by telling a parable. It's this, this earthly story with a, a heavenly spiritual purpose. And this particular parable here is quite interesting. It's incredibly violent. Uh, once we get through it, you can imagine if this were a movie, you probably would not let your children watch this movie uh, because it's just violent all throughout. Uh, however, this is not a movie. This is the Word of God. And so we're going to come to it as the Word of God. Uh, let's go ahead and um, go ahead, listen, follow along. I'm going to begin reading in verse 9 of chapter 20 this morning, and then we'll, we'll pray and unpack it. Verse 9. He is Jesus at the beginning here. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants, so that they would give him some some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one... We're good. Just a chair. Uh, This one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And, when the will, uh, and, and, then, uh, and what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to, the, to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is it that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this strange, violent parable spoken by our Lord and recorded by his servant, Luke. We thank you that it's here before our eyes. We thank you that it's in the scriptures for, for a purpose. And so please enlighten our minds to understand this parable and to change, to grow, to be encouraged or convicted or challenged this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Have you noticed that Jesus 
does this a lot. And by this, I mean he, he speaks to this crowd, but really he's speaking to one segment of the crowd. It's really specific to a, a, a group of person. That's what he's doing here. He's speaking to the crowd, uh, but he's primarily directing this to the Jewish leaders there. That, that's the main people he wants to, to, to get what's going on in this, uh, in this parable. Um, that's who he looks at, in fact, right? Luke chapter, or verse 7 right there. And, and, and while it was directed at them, there, there's still major significance for you and I here 2,000 years later in, in the things that we have to learn from this passage of our Lord. Uh, so first, I want to make sure that we understand the story just as it's given in general. And then we're going to look at the allegory in it. Uh, and then we're going to consider what, what does this mean for us? What are we to learn from it? Uh, and so first of all, the, this man plants a vineyard. Uh, it was common for wealthy men at this time. They're not going to have time to go and tend to their own vineyard. Uh, and so they would hire someone to do that. That's what he does. Uh, and the expectation was not that there was financial money to be exchanged, but that when the harvest comes, they're going to send some of that to him in the form of grapes, in the form of wine, even more likely. Uh, and he's gone a long time. He's just been away. And so he sends the servant to collect some of the harvest. He gets there. The expectation is simply, here's, here's the produce, and they send it back, and everything goes on as normal. But that's not what happens. Uh, he, three servants are actually sent. All three of these servants are beaten physically. They are disrespected, dishonored, ignored, rejected, and, and sent back with absolutely nothing. And so the owner decides to send his son. This seems incredibly risky. Uh, it's easy to look at this and wonder why he does it. Now the idea here is that the tenants might have rejected the messengers because they're not the owner. And, and yet um, sending his son, that's like sending himself, right? This is someone within the family, someone with more authority, more likely to be respected. Surely they will respect his son at this point. Now, when the tenants see the son, it, it appears that they think that this is what's going through. The reason they think if we kill him, we get it, is that uh, they, they think that the, the, uh, the father himself, the owner, is dead at this point. And so they're going through their mind, they're thinking, hey, if if we kill him, there's no heirs after him, this whole thing's ours. It's ours. And so then Jesus asked that question, what, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And he answers the question himself saying, you know, the owner is going to bring justice. He's going to come and he's going to destroy these murderous tenants and then he's going to give the vineyard to other people. That, that's the simple story of what's going on. Now, are you familiar with this term allegory? Allegory is when each part of a story actually represents something else. Something in, in reality is typically how the uh, allegory is, is used. Like the story of Narnia. You've probably seen it, read it, watched the movie maybe. It's this fantastic story. You don't have to know anything about what's going on besides what's really on the surface there uh, to know it's a great story. But it is a really, really great story when you begin to understand that, that Aslan actually represents Christ. And when you begin to... Uh, to see that the witch represents evil and you understand that like Edmund is Judas and, and so on. All these characters are representing biblical uh, stories, you know, information from the Bible. And, and you begin to see that allegory, it all comes to life in a whole new way. So then sometimes people go too far in, in allegory. Uh, they will look at scripture and they start trying to make everything mean something and there's no real clear wave to it. It's like looking for Easter eggs and we're going to just, you know, extrapolate this and that. And, and they go too far. We, we must be careful 
how we do that or we're going to actually miss what, what the actual meaning of Scripture is. Everything is not intended to be uh, hyper-allegorical in, in any way, and so we, we don't want to do that. In fact, on this passage here, if, if you don't see the allegory, you're going to miss what's going on, okay? Be, because this parable, this this is allegory, and it's so obvious, it's so intentional in the telling of this story that, that Jesus in, invites us to read it allegorical. And, and like I said, if we don't read it allegorical, we're, we're going to miss the entire point of the parable to begin with. Each character here and location stands for something or someone else in reality. The, the man who planted the vineyard is God the Father. He's Israel's landlord. In the parable, God is viewed as this absentee, absentee uh, landlord, like he's not there, he's gone, no one knows what's going on with him uh, until he sends these, these messengers. That's not true. Um, the reason that it's built into this, though, is that's the way that the Israelites have viewed God. They are frustrated. 400 years, right, since the last prophet up until this point. They find themselves under the, the rule of, of the Romans. They're, they're frustrated. Where could God possibly be in this moment? Um, my, one of my relatives, I'll say that just in case they listen. Um, yesterday on a conversation, I'll just say this, huge Trump fan. Uh, and is depressed and, and disappointed that he was not elected yesterday. And, and the question this relative asked me is, is at one point was, where is God? Where, where is God? And you can imagine, she's put a lot of hope. Uh, there, I, I went ahead and told you, didn't I? Uh, with pronouns. Anyway, a lot of hope in, in, in everything for the future is, is based on the person who gets elected. And, and she sees it not go her way. And suddenly this question arises, where, where is God? How could he allow this to happen is the question being asked. And this is outside of a Christian context that is being asked. Uh, just bare theism at that point. But that's, that's the way it is. That's what's going on with Israel. Where, where is God? Why is this happening to us? So, so that's why that's there. Now, the vineyard represents Israel. And more specifically, it represents Israel's position as God's chosen people. This connection be between the vineyard and, and Israel, in fact, runs all throughout the Old Testament. This is not the first time that, that, Jesus, that, that God has used this allegory, this image of the vine, of, the, of a vineyard, in fact, for the people of Israel. Uh, Psalm 80, verse 8, the, the, the Levite man named Asaph is, is praising God because God has delivered them from Egypt, and he refers to Israel as being planted in the promised land. And, and Jeremiah calls Israel a choice vine. Hosea says that Israel is a lug, luxuriant vine. And in, in Isaiah chapter 5, there are these lyricals to a song are, are recorded there. Um, I'm going to read it to you. And when you hear these songs, you have to understand this. They're written in Hebrew. So when you read them in English, you're like, that is not, that's not a very good song. That, the, nothing rhymes. That's, it just doesn't go well. You have to get over that, right? Unless you want to go back to the original language on it. So um, so here's what it says. Uh, let me just read to you. Uh, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. And that's set up for rhyming. It's not going to rhyme though, right? Uh, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. And, and in case there's any question about this image, if you skip up a, a few verses forward to Isaiah 5-7, God says explicitly, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And so that's this image that's ongoing. And I tell you that, and all that background, so you know that those Jewish leaders hearing it, they know what this allegory is representing. They're not shocked by it at all. Um, so the tenants then, right? The guys that are renting it out, who do they represent? 
If the vineyard is Israel, who was put in authority by God to tend for God's people so that his people would bear good fruit? The grapes of obedience, the wine of joyful worship, right? The, the, the tenets are the spiritual leaders of, wor- uh, of Israel. We're talking the priests and the scribes, the Pharisees, um, those men. The, the people Jesus is directing this at, as we've already mentioned, these, these leaders were supposed to be nurturing the people of God. They were supposed to be giving them good spiritual care so that they would be fruitful, feeding them on the word of God and pruning them with correcting, correction and protecting them from weeds and thieves. And, and the leaders were supposed to love and tend this vineyard of the Lord's so that God's people would produce fruit. But what they have actually been doing for generations now is abusing the authority they've been giving. They've become self-righteous. They've wanted prestige. They've wanted the financial gains. They wanted to use this vineyard just for their own sakes. That's the tenets here. Then, Then the servants, right? The ones that the owner sends. Then the parable. These are the prophets, particularly in the Old Testament. You'd have to throw John the Baptist in there as well. Second uh, Chronicles 36, 15 through 16, uh, we get this picture of God sending his prophets to his servants. Listen to this. <clears throat> the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, des- despising his words and scoffing at his prophets. There's two things to notice here. First in that passage, first thing is this. Do you see the reason that God sends his messengers, sends the prophets? I'll read it again, that part. He just says, because God had compassion on his people. We, we tend to see these prophets as these, these angry people. They come frustrated and, and bringing, you know, here's what's going to happen because of what you've done. And, and that's part of it, right? They, they come and represent the righteous anger of the Lord, absolutely. But, but the anger is driven by this because of his great love for his people. And he wants to see them repent. He wants to see them flourish. That's, you know, the goal of that compassion. In, in that passage, we also see how the Jewish leaders, uh, the, the tenants, receive God's prophet. They reject him, the persecution, there's abuse uh, you think back to this, Jeremiah the prophet was mocked, he was beaten, and then he was thrown into this pit and just left for dead. The, uh, the chief priest told Amos the prophet, don't ever speak again, never ever speak again, right? The, here comes the message from God through Amos, and they don't want to hear it. Ze- Zechariah was actually murdered just here, here at the temple, just outside. And so then, who does the sun represent? This is the obvious one. It's the answer to every Sunday school question and children's Sunday school question in the history of the world, right? Jesus. Uh, of course, it's Jesus. And we're going to come back to that in a moment. Well, that's significant. And so the question then arises, what's the real world meaning of the owner destroying the tenants and giving the vineyard to others? The answer is so obvious to the Jewish leaders here that they react the way you see them do, right? They say, surely not my grandma used to use that phrase. Surely not. We don't use it today. What do we say? Like, no way. Absolutely. That, that can't be real. We have all these other phrases. I can't think of them right now. But, but, but surely not. It's just this, this outrage. What you're saying cannot be true. Surely God would never destroy the Jewish leaders that they respect so much. 
But surely God would never fulfill and end the sacrificial system. Surely God would never give the position of being his chosen people to, to Gentiles who trust in Jesus. Surely not. Surely that's not what you mean. But God does. The temple where the sacrifices were made was destroyed in 70 AD. It's still that way today. It's never been rebuilt. The, the church is made up of all who by faith trust in Jesus, including Gentiles. That's who the people of God are. The spiritual care and leadership of God's chosen vineyard was taken from the priests and it was given to the apostles and then later to elders. As David Gooding puts it, God's spiritual interest in the care of people who believed in and served the true God of Israel would pass out of the hands of Judaism's priesthood and eventually to a large extent out of the hands of Israel altogether. So then what does this parable mean for us today? Really, what does it, what does it teach us? For one, it, it teaches us right off the bat how incredibly patient God is. Patient in ways that we don't want him to be patient sometimes. See, typically the owner of a vineyard, after seeing the first servant come back, abused and rejected without anything, would have just sent people to destroy those tenants. That would have been the end of that immediately. But the owner here, God, in compassion, continues to give opportunity for repentance. And he sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet. And he endures rejection after rejection, rebellion after rebellion, abuse after abuse. Jesus also points out that he is the last chance for Israel to respond well. Today, God is still patient with unbelievers. He's still patient with churches and pastors and those those in congregations who do evil and proclaim false teaching and twist the truth for gain, who succumb to unbiblical cultural norms and who who refuse to believe and obey his word. That's the part where we're like, why is he so patient? That's the part where really if we we had the opportunity, we'd probably be like, don't be so patient. Let's just, let's get rid of that now and and, and, and thankfully, over history, the Lord has brought about times of reformation, times about refreshing, renewing in the church. We've seen the patience and, the, uh, and God's compassion actually come and bring about re- renews, re- renewal in the church at different points in history. We also individual exper- individually experience the incredible patience of our Lord. We're probably not so quick to want him to not be patient in these situations. Maybe you're frustrated at your own failures towards obedience over and over and over again. The Lord is patient and he invites and through his Holy Spirit even empowers us to repent. He longs to see us flourish in joyful obedience to him and restful trust in him. God is merciful and compassionate and patient. Let us be grateful for this but also see the other thing that this parable teaches us that God's patience will come to an end. Don't presume it goes on forever. When it does, there will come swift judgment to all who defy the Father by rejecting the Son. The second thing we see here, just quickly, is that violence against the the owner's servants, right? This, This teaches us to expect hostility to the gospel. See, the, uh, we get weird about the term prophets or prophesying. When I was in seminary, there's this booklet that was written by a Puritan called The Art of Prophesying. And I picked it up thinking, weird, I didn't know the, the Puritans really were charismatic. 
uh, and they're not. Uh, what they mean is that anytime you take the word of God and you proclaim it somewhere, that is prophesying. When you take what is given in the, in the scriptures, the written word of God, and you share it with anyone, you are prophesying. And that's how the Puritans meant it in, in that way. And, and the thing we learn here is that when we take God's word, his message, and you proclaim it, you can expect hostility and violence and rejection. That's exactly what his servants end up going through here because of the name of Christ and his word. The third thing this teaches is that elders in the church are to care for God's vineyard, his people, to feed and to prune and to protect from outside dangers in the hopes that God will, will make the vines fruitful and be glorified in that work. Here, here we see what kind of church leadership God loves, leadership that acknowledges God's lordship, Le- leadership that acknowledges, one, this is his, his vineyard. It doesn't belong to the leaders. Um, that honors God's word, receives God's son, recognizes that God's people are not for their own benefit, but for the glory of God. The fourth thing we see here is that this teaches us that the father sent his beloved son. I know that seems like just pure information. It's, it's pretty phenomenal really here. I mean, at what point in this story do you realize, oh, Jesus is telling a story of, about himself. He's telling us a story of what's going to happen to him. Because all the people present at the time, they don't, they don't really understand that yet. We, and, and, and here's the thing. We, we tend to think of Jesus, <clears throat> we relate to him. We use terms that are like how he and I relate to, to each other, right? We have reference to ourselves. He, he's our savior. He's our friend. He's our, our, our brother. He's our king. He's our redeemer. And those are all right and good ways to be referring to, to Christ in your life. They're absolutely right. But here we see the way that Jesus is referred to from the perspective of his heavenly father. Verse 13, right? The character who represents God says, I will send my beloved son. That's who Jesus is to the father. My beloved son. Which on first reading of the parable is, is honestly a bit bothersome, isn't it? Because you, you kind of, you know what's going to happen already. It's it's like when you see a character in a scary movie, right? And they go into the dark basement and they, they carry nothing with them, no weapon or anything like that. And you just want to shout out, don't, don't go in there. That's the dumbest thing you can do. Here we want to say, do not send your beloved son, right? If he's so beloved, you do not send him because they're going to kill him. But that's part of the point here. God the Father and and Jesus the Son, they both know what's going to happen. It's not a surprise. It sounds like a surprise in the parable, right? But but in reality, they both know exactly. Nothing's surprising them. They know when Jesus comes. That's why he comes. Jesus has sent, the the beloved Son is sent knowing that. Because Jesus is not, and here's why. Because Jesus is not only loved with the Father's love, but he was also sent with the father's mission. In the parable, they, they take the son outside of the vineyard. In actual history, the, the leaders take Jesus outside the gates of Jerusalem. In fact, Hebrews 13, 12 says just that, right? Jesus also suffered outside the gates, or outside the gates. Uh, at the place outside of Jerusalem, you probably heard of it, Golgotha, means the, the place of the skull. It's where people were put to death uh, for capital punishment. Jesus was killed there. 
Now, it's true, and this is where it's hard to get our heads around sometimes, that, that, that Jesus gave up his life. He laid down his life willingly, and it gets confusing to us because it's also true that the tenants of Israel murdered him. That, that was the intention of their heart, the evilness in their heart. In fact, we, we see both of those things in Acts 2, Acts 2 2.22 and 23. Listen to this. Men of Israel, hear these words. So he's speaking to Israel, uh, the leaders. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. Listen to this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was God's plan. He knows it's going to happen. You're right? And then it continues. Here's the next line. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. They murdered him and he laid down his life. Both of those things are absolutely true. Now, on, on killing God's beloved son, Philip Reichen says this. He says, it was a brutal, horrible crime. It was the worst thing that anyone has ever done. The murder of God's infinitely perfect son. The worst thing that's ever been done. So here's the interesting thing. This, this parable points to the gospel. Right? You, you kind of know that already. As soon as Jesus is in it, you know that's going to happen. If you receive Jesus, if you believe in him, you'll be saved forever. Your sin becomes his sin. Your sin is atoned for by Christ upon the cross. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. It's, it's considered, atone, it's given to you. Uh, the other side of the gospel is what happens if we reject the beloved son. This is the part of the gospel we don't often talk about. What, what, you know, to, to those who won't believe in Christ, what is this teaching us? People in, in every generation, in fact, and especially our own generation, they, they don't like to hear how God will deal with sinners and, uh, who haven't trusted in Jesus Christ. But when we, when we, what we see in this story here, um, I mean, how can you argue with the aspect of justice here? They reject the Son, right? They murder the Son. They've done it to all the, the prophets that came before, and, and we see justice and the eternal punishment. Many in, in our days, like the tenants, though, in, in this story, live as though the father were dead. That, that's really the way many people walk through life. Just God, you know, and in fact, those are the words of Frederick Nietzsche, the now famous words of Frederick Nietzsche God is dead. When, when people live that way, they, they think, if, we can just, if I can just get rid of Jesus, right? If I can mentally be, be done with Jesus, put him out as if he does not exist. If, if, if I can just believe that God is dead and I'm rejecting Jesus, then, then I can possess life any way I want. And that's the view of many people in our world today. The life belongs to me to be lived how I want to live it with no consequences. It's existential autonomy. And the problem with this is that just like the tenants were wrong in the parable, so are all today who wrongly believe that God is dead and that if they can put out the sun, they can live their own life any way they want. Because God is not dead. I mean, you think about this parable. I know it's a story, but if you put it into real life situation, can you imagine the, the moment that these tenants realize that the father is not dead? I mean, can you imagine them? Time's gone by. They're living there. They're living that this is our vineyard. All the prophets are ours. We're doing it our way. We own this thing. And, and suddenly they see in the distance, here comes some guy. Oh, that's the father. 
that we, we killed his son. We rejected him. I just, you can't imagine that. But that's going to be reality for many of those that we live and, and work among in our lives. Which brings us back to the question that Jesus asked in verse 15. What, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? It's not good. It is the worst thing that can come to any soul. Eternal punishment. Jesus in John 3.18 tells us that God sent his son into the world. And then he adds this. Listen, he says, Whoever believes in him, the son, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. That's reality. There's one more thing to address in this passage. And and that's the exchange of words after the parable, right? The Jewish leaders, they're so outraged that what Jesus had to say, um, that he's just said against them, really. And when we see in this moment, they are still, they're not not broken by what they've heard. They are still so incredibly proud, uh, prideful in their own heart, so sure of themselves that there's no chance that we're seeing in their response here of of them humbly repenting uh, and turning to Christ. And then in verse 17, Jesus looks right at them, right, with these these piercing eyes, right at these, these men. And he says, what then is it that's written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. A, a cornerstone, it's this large foundational stone. It is the stone that directs how everything else is going to be built around it. It is, it is the most important stone in a building at this time. And, and, and it's also, here Jesus is quoting from Psalm 118, verse 22, which is interesting because it's the same psalm that you remember uh, two, three weeks ago when Jesus is riding in on the back of a donkey and they're singing. That was Psalm uh, 118 as well, just a few verses after this. Uh, and in the original context these wo- of these words, it's about this really strange occurrence where um, stones were cut a long way away from Jerusalem and then they were, they were brought to Jerusalem and they were putting everything together that they're going to build the temple out of. And apparently one massive stone arrives and, and the person in charge looks at it and thinks this, this thing's not cut right, it's the wrong shape, the wrong size, whatever it might be. And so they, they put it aside, they reject the stone, that's, just, that's not part of our building material. Um, and, and they're done with it. But eventually, to everyone's surprise, that, that stone that was rejected turns out to be the perfect size, the perfect shape to serve as the cornerstone for the building of this temple. And as Psalm 118 says, this is the Lord's doing. Jesus is the stone that the builders reject. And Jesus is the stone, right, that, that was rejected. Now, rejected unto death. But, but Jesus would not be rejected forever. The, the Father would raise him up again and, and Jesus becomes the cornerstone of our salvation. Jesus paints this picture, in fact, right? That, that he's the cornerstone and, and some are going to stumble over him and they're going to fall on the ground. Uh, and then he doubles down. You see that saying, it's, it's not the same picture. It's two pictures right after each other, right? Because everyone who falls down, that stone's going to fall on and crush. And, and he's just putting it both ways. You, you don't want to stumble on this. And that raises the big question for us. What, what does it look like to stumble over Jesus? How, how do you even know if, if he's been a stumbling stone you've stumbled over? And from the passage, we know that one way to stumble over Jesus is to simply reject him. To deny that Jesus exists. To deny his divinity. To deny his 
death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, to, to reject the lordship of Christ in your life? That's 1 Peter 2.8, working from the same image of the cornerstone. You can go read it sometime, chapter 2. Um, it, it's interesting, but at one point he says, they stumble because they disobey the word. Maybe it's, it's more helpful if we consider this from the positive side. What, what's the opposite of, of stumbling over Jesus? It's, it's standing upon him as the rock-solid foundation of your life and your faith. It's, it's, it's living the blood-bought, deeply loved, Holy Spirit-filled as followers of Christ. The other side of, of what we read just a moment ago in First Peter would be honoring the Word of God, obeying the Word of God. It's humbly considering others as more significant than ourselves, Philippians uh, 2. It's taking our anxieties to the Lord, Philippians 4. It's having no other gods before God, Exodus 20, and so on and so on and so on. We, 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 we stand instead of stumble over Jesus when we trust him completely. Going back to 1 Peter 2.6, you know, it says this, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the question is, do you, do you believe in Jesus? Truly, deeply, foundationally, moment by moment in your life? Do you, do you believe he's the Messiah? Do you believe he died on the cross as a sacrifice for your sin? Do you, do you believe he rose from the day, dead and today is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty? Do you believe he's coming again for you? Do you believe he's reigning on the throne? Do you believe he has that position of lordship rightfully over your life? If not, I, I want you to know I, I'm not trying to be manipulative. But the word calls us to be absolutely truthful here. Because of your sin, if that's you, because of your sin, if you do not believe on Christ, you will be crushed under the weight of God's wrath. Again, that's, that's what we see in Luke 20, verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. In the most simple of terms, either you will stumble over Jesus or you or he will be the solid rock foundation upon which you stand. Church, uh, and those seeking, <clears throat> do not stumble over the cornerstone of salvation. Do not stumble over Jesus. And do, do not fall and be crushed uh, under the righteous judgment of God the Father, but believe in his beloved Son. Now, I, I want to end today by, by reading Jude 1, 24 through 25. It's actually our, our benediction at the end. The benedictions are... Uh, one of the few things in the bulletin that get laid out long before the rest of everything else. I didn't even occur to me that it was the same thing I was closing the sermon with until this morning. Anyway, not that you care about that, but I love to see God's providence in these little ways. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we know who the cornerstone is. Thank you for so many in this room who have not rejected that stone, but by your grace and work of your spirits, those who have, have received the Lord. We, we thank you for those who have trusted in Christ and who have found forgiveness of sin and surety of salvation and joy in their hearts 
And please, Lord, we, we also ask that you would work salvation in the lives of any who this day have heard your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.